Chapter Eleven of the God of All Comfort. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rainia. The God of All Comfort by Hannah Whittle Smith. Chapter Eleven. Things that cannot be shaken. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. After all we have been considering of the unfathomable love and care of God, it may seem to those who do not understand the deepest ways of love that no trials or hardness could ever come into the lives of his children. But if we look deeply into the matter, we shall see that often love itself must needs bring the hardness. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons." If love sees those it loves going wrong, it must, because of its very love, do what it can to save them, and the love that fails to do this is only selfishness. Therefore, just because of his unfathomable love, the God of love, when he sees his children resting their souls on things that can be shaken, must necessarily remove those things from their lives in order that they may be driven to rest only on the things that cannot be shaken. And this process of removing is sometimes very hard. We will all acknowledge, I think, that if our souls are to rest in peace and comfort, it can only be on unshakable foundations. It is no more possible for the soul to be comfortable when it is trying to rest on things that can be shaken than it is for the body. No one can rest comfortably on a shaking bed or sit in comfort on a rickety chair. Foundations, to be reliable, must always be unshakable. The house of the foolish man, which is built on the sand, may present a very fine appearance in clear and sunshiny weather. But when storms arise, and the winds blow, and floods come, that house will fall, and great will be the fall of it. The wise man's house, on the contrary, which is built on the rock, is able to withstand all the stress of the storm, and remains unshakable through winds and floods, for it is founded on the rock. It is very possible in the Christian life to build one's spiritual house on such insecure foundations, that when storms beat upon it, the ruin of that house is great. Many a religious experience that has seemed fair enough when all was going well in life has tottered and fallen when trials have come, because its foundations have been insecure. It is therefore of vital importance to each one of us to see to it that our religious life is built upon things that cannot be shaken. Of course, the immediate thought that will come to every mind is that it must be built upon the rock, Christ Jesus. This is true. 
but the great point is what is meant by that expression. It is one of those religious phrases that is often used conventionally, with no definite or real meaning attached to it. Conventionally, we believe that Christ is the only rock upon which to build. But practically, though perhaps unconsciously, we believe that in order to have a rock upon which it will be really safe to build, many other things must be added to Christ. We think, for instance, that the right frames and feelings must be added, or the right doctrines or dogmas, or whatever else may seem to each one of us to constitute the necessary degree of security. And if we were only perfectly honest with ourselves, I suspect we should often find that our dependence was almost wholly upon these additions of our own and that Christ himself, as our rock of dependence, was of altogether secondary importance. What we ought to mean when we talk of building upon the rock Christ Jesus is what I am trying all through this book to make plain, and that is that the Lord is enough for our salvation. Just the Lord only, without any additions of our own, the Lord Himself, as He is in His own intrinsic character, our Creator and Redeemer, and our all-sufficient portion. The foundation of God standeth sure, and it is the only foundation that does. Therefore, we need to be shaken from off every other foundation, in order that we may be forced to rest on the foundation of God alone, and this explains the necessity for those shakings through which so many Christians seem called to pass. The Lord sees that they are building their spiritual houses on flimsy foundations, which will not be able to withstand the vehement beating of the storms of life, and not in anger but in tenderest love. He shakes our earth and our heaven until all that can be shaken is removed and only those things which cannot be shaken are left behind. The Apostle tells us that the things that are shaken are the things that are made, that is, the things that are manufactured by our own efforts, feelings that we get up, doctrines that we elaborate, good works that we perform. It is not that these things are bad things in themselves. It is only when the soul begins to rest on them instead of upon the Lord, that he is compelled to shake us from off them. And this shaking applies, as we are told, not to the earth only, but also to heaven. This means, I am sure, that it is possible to have things that are made even in religious matters. How much of the so-called religiousness of many Christians consists of these things that are made, I cannot say. But I sometimes think the great overturnings and tossings in matters of faith, which so distress Christians in these times, may be only the necessary shaking of the things that are made, in order that only that which cannot be shaken may remain. There are times, it may be, in our religious lives, when our experience seems to us as settled and immovable as the roots of the everlasting mountains. But there comes an upheaval and all our foundations are shaken and thrown down, and we are ready to despair and to question whether we can be Christians at all. 
Sometimes it is an upheaval in our outward circumstances, and sometimes it is in our inward experience. If people have rested on their good words and their faithful service, the Lord is often obliged to take away all power for work or else all opportunity, in order that the soul may be driven from its false resting place and forced to rest in the Lord alone. Sometimes the dependence is upon good feelings or pious emotions, and the soul has to be deprived of these before it can learn to depend only upon God. Sometimes it is upon sound doctrine that the dependence is placed, and the man feels himself to be occupying an invulnerable position, because his views are so correct and his doctrines are so orthodox. And then the Lord is obliged to shake his doctrines and to plunge him, it may be, into confusion and darkness as to his views. It was at just such a moment as this that my own soul caught its first real sight of God. And what had seemed certain spiritual ruin and defeat was turned into the most triumphant victory. Or it may be that the upheaval comes in our outward circumstances. Everything has seemed so firmly established in prosperity that no dream of disaster disturbs us. Our reputation is assured, our work has prospered, our efforts have all been successful beyond our hopes, and our soul is at ease. And the need for God is in danger of becoming far off and vague. And then the Lord is obliged to put an end to it all, and our prosperity crumbles around us like a house built on sands, and we are tempted to think He is angry with us. But in very truth it is not anger, but tenderest love. His very love it is that compels Him to take away the outward prosperity that is keeping our souls from entering into the interior spiritual kingdom for which we long. When the fig tree ceases to bloom, and there is no fruit in the vines, when the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, when the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, then, and often not until then, will our souls learn to rejoice in the Lord only, and to joy in the God of our salvation. Paul declared that he counted all things but loss, that he might win Christ. And when we learn to say the same, the peace and joy that the gospel promises become our permanent possession. What iniquity, asked the Lord of the children of Israel, have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Like the Israelites, we too forsake the fountain of living waters and try to hew out for ourselves cisterns of our own devising. We seek to slack our thirst with our own experiences or our own activities and then wonder that we still thirst. And it is to save us from perishing for want of water 
that the Lord finds it necessary to destroy our broken cisterns, since only so can we be forced to drink from the fountain of living waters. We are told that if we trust in vanity, vanity shall be our recompense. And many a time have we found this to be true. Have you ever crossed a dangerous swamp, abounding in quicksands, where every step was a risk, and where firm-looking hillocks continually deceived you into a false dependence, causing you to sink in the mire and water concealed beneath their deceptive appearances? If you have, you will be able to understand what it means to trust in vanity, and you will appreciate the blessedness of any dispensation that shall discover to you the rottenness of your false dependencies, and shall drive you to trust in that which is safe and permanent. When our feet are walking on miry clay, we can have nothing but welcome for the divine guide who shall bring us out from the clay and shall set our feet upon a rock and establish our goings, even though the ways in which he calls us to walk may seem narrow and hard. The prophet Jeremiah, when lamenting the sins of his people, says, We have made lies our refuge, and under falsehoods have we hid ourselves. And he adds that the Lord had declared he would sweep away the refuge of lies, and would cause the waters to overflow the hiding place. It might look as far as the outward seeming goes, as though it was God's wrath that did this. And many a frightened Christian thinks it is. But his wrath is only against the refuges of lies, not against us. And love could do no less than destroy these refuges in order that we may be delivered. A dear old friend of mine who was very interested in my spiritual welfare gave me a little book called The Seventeen False Rest of the Soul evidently feeling that I was in danger of settling down upon one or another of these false rests. The book set forth in quaint old language the idea that the soul was continually tempted to sit down upon some falsity, as though it were a final resting place, and that God was continually obliged to unbottom all such false resting places, as though one should unbottom a chair and let the sitter fall through. All these seventeen false rests were described, and as was shown how the soul, being unbottomed off each one successively, settled down at last upon the only true rest in God. This unbottoming is only another word for the shakings and emptyings of which I have been writing. It is always a painful process, and often a most discouraging one. Everything seems unstable, and rest seems utterly unattainable. No sooner do we find an experience or a doctrine in which we think we may surely rest, that a great shaking comes, and we are forced out again. And this process must continue until all that can be shaken is removed, and only those things which cannot be shaken remain. 
Often, the answer to our most fervent prayers for deliverance comes in such a form that it seems as if the very foundations of the hills moved and were shaken. And we do not always see at first that it is by means of this very shaking that the deliverance for which we have prayed is to be accomplished, and we are to be brought forth into the large place for which we long. The old mystics used to teach what they called detachment, meaning the cutting loose of the soul from all that could hold it back from God. This need for detachment is the secret of many of our shakings. We cannot follow the Lord fully so long as we are tied fast to anything else, any more than a boat can sail out into the boundless ocean so long as it is tied fast to the shore. If we could reach the city which hath sure and steadfast foundations, we must go out like Abraham from all other cities, and must be detached from every earthly tie. Everything in Abraham's life that could be shaken was shaken. He was, as it were, emptied from vessel to vessel, here today and gone tomorrow. All his resting places were disturbed, and no settlement or comfort anywhere. We, like Abraham, are looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and therefore we too shall need to be emptied from vessel to vessel. But we do not realize this, and when the overturnings and shakings come, we are in despair and think we shall never reach the city that hath foundations at all. But it is these very shakings that make it possible for us to reach it. The psalmist had learned this, and after all the shakings and emptying of his eventful life, he cried, My soul wait thou upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. At last, God was everything to him, and then he found that God was enough. And it is the same with us. When everything in our lives and experience is shaken that can be shaken, and only that which cannot be shaken remains, we are brought to see that God only is our rock and our foundation, and we learn to have our expectation from Him alone. Therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Shall not be moved. What an inspiring declaration! Can it be possible that we, who are so easily moved by the things of earth, can arrive at a place where nothing can upset our temper or disturb our calm? Yes, it is possible. And the Apostle Paul knew it. When he was on his way to Jerusalem, where he foresaw that bonds and afflictions awaited him, he could say triumphantly, But none of these things move me. 
Everything in Paul's life and experience that could be shaken had been shaken, and he no longer counted his life or any of life's possessions dear unto him. And we, if we but let God have his way with us, may come to the same place so that neither the fret and fear of the little things of life nor its great and heavy trials can have power to move us from the peace that passeth all understanding which is declared to be the portion of those who have learned to rest only on god in that wonderful revelation made to john in the isle that is called patmos where the Spirit tells to the churches what awaits those who overcome, we have a statement that expresses in striking terms just what I mean. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. To be as immovable as a pillar in the house of our God is an end for which one would gladly endure all the shakings and unbottomings that may be necessary to bring us there. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. A great many people are afraid of the consuming fire of God but that is only because they do not understand what it is. It is the fire of God's love that must, in the very nature of things, consume everything that can harm his people. And if our hearts are set on being what the love of God would have us be, his fire is something we shall not be afraid of, but shall warmly welcome. Implacable is love. Foes may be bought or teased from their malign intent, but he goes unappeased, who is on kindness bent. Let us thank God, then, that he is on kindness bent toward us, and that the consuming fire of his love will not cease to burn until it has refined us as silver is refined. For the promise is that he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purge us as gold and silver are purged, in order that we may offer unto him an offering in righteousness. And he gives us this inspiring assurance that if we will but submit to this purifying process, we shall become pleasant unto the Lord, and all nations shall call us blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. To be pleasant and delightsome to the Lord may seem to us impossible when we look at our shortcomings and our unworthiness. But when we think of this lovely, consuming fire of God's love, we can be of good heart and take courage, for he will not fail nor be discouraged until all our dross and reprobate silver is burned up and we ourselves come forth in his likeness and are conformed to his image. Our souls long for the kingdom which cannot be moved, and he who is on kindness bent will, if we let him, shake everything in our lives that can be shaken, and will unbottom us off every false rest, until only that which cannot be shaken shall remain. One of the most impressive sermons I ever heard was preached by a sweet-faced, 
old Quaker lady, who rose in the stillness and said, "'Yesterday Sister Tabitha broke all to pieces my best china teapot, but the Lord whom I trust kept my soul in perfect peace and enabled me not to utter a single word of reproach.' That was all. The sermon ended, but into every heart there entered a sense of what it would mean to be kept in the immovable kingdom of the love of God. And this kingdom may be our home, if we will but submit to the shakings of God, and will learn to rest only and always on Him. May He hasten the day for each one of us. End of chapter 11 Things That Cannot Be Shaken Recording by Rainia